House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren, and Mr. David North Martino is here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all three names. Yeah. Again. All is, this, is this another week where you're going to be uh, you know, no. No, it's going to be one of those. No? You don't see it coming. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> Makes it more exciting. Makes it much more exciting. Right. You know, I'm going to pull a Vin Diesel on you. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm walking off the set. Yeah, I can't work. That's it. I can't work. I can't work with him. <laughs> you know. Anyway, stop, stop bugging Vin. He's my buddy. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, speaking of Vin Diesel, we've got a real action star here today. Um, so we're going to talk to a man that's uh, not only living it, but writing about it. So, Mr. Jack Levers, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, thank you for inviting me, Alan. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, wow. So you have quite the life. Um, so a Royal Marine for over 30 years, um, and well, now it, you're in, now yeah, you're in was, private. Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a Royal Marine for uh, nine years, um, so it's 30 years uh, of military and private security um, experience. So, in fact, the private security experience now is far surpasses the time that I spent in the Corps. Why would someone leave the Royal Marine and go into private security? Like, is it just better money or a better position? What makes a person do that? Money. Um, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, well, you know what it's like with the with the military. The guys in the military, um, or certainly the way it was when I was there in the 80s and 90s, uh, are always talking about what they're going to do next. There's always this grass is always greener kind of feel. Uh, and of course, most of the time, you know, you're actually when you're in the military is probably the times you're always going to look back on as the best times. But you always believe there's something amazing around the corner and you're always hearing rumors of that big contract that's out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just sort of sometimes sometimes some of the guys, um, the best guys in the military actually leave. Uh, I mean, a lot of them stay, but sometimes they leave because they don't quite fit into the um, the, the sort of regimen of the military um, so well. You know, a bit more free, free thinking, um, and a bit more entrepreneurial, and, and that they get out and, you know, they get involved in, well, especially what, what's happened since, uh, certainly since 2001, since 9-11, you know, the, the whole world changed private security-wise, and there's a lot of opportunities out there, or there certainly were during the during that first decade. Is it quite a bit different, um, the two types of service? Like uh, it, like when you're in the, in the military itself, there's one way of, of living and, and, and working, behaving, so to speak, and you go to the private security. Is it is it a better lifestyle? It's just, it's very, it is very different. I mean, you've got a, uh, certainly in Iraq, um, we worked on Department of Defense contracts. So for Department of Defense, Department of State. So you're, you're quite, um, you know, constrained by rules and regulations. But fundamentally, the companies are much smaller entities, of course, than, than the military. When you're part of the big green machine, it's, um, you know, you're very small small cog in a huge you know organization whereas in a in a private security company often and i worked i've tended to work with smaller companies you actually have a huge influence you i mean whether you're the country manager or you're in a senior position or even a team leader out on the ground you 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 know these are guys that are 
former NCOs rather than officers usually. So they've got command positions that they wouldn't really have in the same way in the military. So when, when we see these uh, movies on, on Netflix and places like that, and they're, you know, they're kind of based on private security action going all over, you know, Africa and Europe and, and different places. Um, do, do they get that pretty accurate in the most part? I think there's, there's sort of two different, um, types of, uh, of sort of private security. There's the, there's the big government contracts. And when you get some of the, especially on the, the big American government contracts, I know you've got companies working down in South America and working all, all across out in the, um, out, sort of out in the Far East as well. Um, and now that's the, a different level to where I've been working. That's a, a far more organized, you, you, you know, you'll see some of the, and uh, mixed with um, OGA and, you know, and three data agencies and, and, and much closer to the government. That's how it, that's certainly how it, from my experience, that's how it appears. Whereas, and as I was saying in Iraq, that was quite organized and you had various sizes of companies that, you know, all sitting there in that space. You go out to Africa and suddenly it's the Wild West. I mean, you're on your own. Um, and, and I found even the same in Afghanistan for me personally. I didn't have much experience over there. But you don't have the same level of um, support and integration um, with officialdom. I mean, certainly in Africa, you're, you know, you're, you're riding, you're riding you know, a shotgun around the, around the country, really, and, and making up, you know, liaising yourself and working off of your own uh, initiative um, to try and get things done and, and, and obviously to try and mitigate risk. Um, now, as far as the movies, uh, I think a lot of the Netflix and the movies, they, they do get some of the things right um, from what I can tell. But I certainly, when I decided to write a couple of books, I, I went down the, the very realistic route, as in I, I felt that it hadn't quite been shown the way that I'd I understood it, which was small company, very, um, uh, uh, very um, bespoke projects, um, you know, that are that are then, you know, big financial rewards, high risk, high reward. You know, there are some of these things. A lot of these things don't happen. A lot of these things never get the green light. But then some of them, when they do, um, that's when it gets that's when it gets quite interesting. And, and there are a lot of those projects probably gone that I, would, that I certainly would know nothing about. So I'm sure that um, a lot of things that we see on, in the movies and, and on Netflix probably a bit tamer than what's actually happened for real. Because, you know, uh, the truth is obviously usually far more unbelievable than fiction. Well, when you're writing about private security, um, just like uh, some military writers have to do, do you have to, I guess, um, submit your books for review? to um, whether it be government or to the private security company that you're working for to, uh, to have it reviewed to make sure that you're not giving out confidential information or does it not work like that? Might do. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't work for companies that are big enough and I don't still work mm. for any companies that would be affected. So for the last, um, well, in fact, I mean, really for most of the last 20 years, I mean, I've been working for very small outfits or working for myself in a consultancy level. So it doesn't really apply. Um, okay. you know, and, and I've not been, I've not been working closely with, um, with American, you know, government agencies or British government agencies. So there's no, you know, the confidentiality, confidentiality contracts that I did have to sign when I was in the military don't apply either. 
um, because I have actually worked for an American, I, I was a VP for an American um, uh, company as well out in, in Iraq. So I've sort of worked the British and the American angle for American Department of Defense, Department of State. But those pieces aren't actually, I haven't written about any of that anyway. I mean, I actually, when, when uh, my first book was, was set before I did that, before I actually worked on the, uh, in the coalition side, if you like, before I worked behind the wire. And then the other book is, uh, is way out there. It's uh, well away from any officialdom. What made you go into writing books and, and about things that you're a part of? Like, what was the uh, catalyst for that? Um, in 2017, uh, I'd been, I'd done some work in Yemen. I'd been in Africa. We got caught up with the Ebola thing, so a bit of problem. I'd done some work in Yemen, um, and that was a, a difficult situation over there. I'd done some work with the Peshmerga. I'd, um, uh, after ISIS, after Daesh, um, rolled into the um, north, of, north of Iraq. Uh, then I'd run a security company over in northern Iraq for you. And then I got involved in United Nations contracting, uh, as in providing uh, generators, water, pipes, uh, all kinds of things through the through the UN into into northern and southern Iraq. You know, in the reconstruction after Daesh, and I got a bit burnt by by a couple of those contracts. And I was waiting for money, and I was basically filled with bitterness and rage about what was happening. <laughs> and I had to find a vent. I had to find something to put that energy into. And so I thought, well, you know, let me revisit this idea of perhaps writing a book. Um, and that's literally how I did it. I just sat down and thought, right, let's just start writing what happened. I knew the start point already because I'd always vowed that's where I'd start a book. Um, and I just started writing. And then I, I wound up fictional plot into what really happened. Um, and that's that sort of when I that, that was the first book. It took me about three or four months to get the first draft out. So I didn't have any I didn't have any long desire to write. In fact, I didn't even think it would be, it would be possible. I, although I'm although I'm quite a good I've been told I'm quite a good um, author of reports, of factual reports, of situation reports, of you know ground truth reporting from countries. In fact, I probably did my my sort of writing um, apprenticeship, actually working as an investigator uh, between about 2000 and 2003, where I had a, a lead investigator, an intellectual property anti-counterfeiting, who um, vetted my reports, who, who edited them, who uh, critiqued them. And um, there was some very um, – I, I developed my own style in that. And actually, that, those three years was probably where I, where I developed the ability to, to put some words together. But it was all, all very much caveated because, it, you know, it's, when you're writing um, investigative reports, it's very different from writing fiction. But, that, but that's where that came from, and that's where the idea that I might be able to do it came from. But I never thought I'd actually I, – I didn't have a clue how you would go about writing a novel. I just sat down and started writing. <laughs> well, that's like a lot of people. That's a, you know. Hi. Um, so now your first book, that was Appetite for Risk. Yep. Um, and now that's set after uh, Saddam Hussein – is uh, fallen already, I guess, and, and they're on the rebuild. And now you, your main character, I guess, is uh, Royal Marine John Pierce. Yeah. And, and he takes, uh, decides to take the opportunity to go to the country when it's rebuilding and perhaps uh, make some money. Um, so let's, let's talk about this, this idea and also about John Pierce. Like, who is John Pierce and where do you get a character like that from? Um, someone you you work worked with there, or is it just kind of a combination, or is it you? Uh, basically, John Pierce was John Pierce was me. 
I mean, it was actually an alias that I used in uh, a cover company alias. I used an investigation company. And when I started writing, I just started writing what happened. Um, And I think for all of us, when you go back, especially when you're talking about going back 15 years or longer, um, your even your own memories actually become fictionalized, really. You don't really, I mean, I certainly don't truly actually remember. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's almost like trying to recall a movie that you've seen anyway. So I put myself back in the position. I've got photographs from the time. Um, I, I knew what had happened, and I just started writing the story. Now, I didn't want to write... I didn't have enough, to, or I, I, there wasn't enough. It wasn't interesting enough. In fact, it was more. It was too complicated to try and do any kind of memoir, to try and do any kind of non-fiction. So the idea was to start writing and then just, you know, wind some fiction into it and try and get a cutoff point in the real story where it could, you know, where it where it would be a um, a convenient point and a and a satisfying point to end the novel. Oh, so you get lots of girls for John Pierce. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the, now the thing is, the thing is, of course. Now, what the, the problem with writing, the, the problem with writing, sort of, and with a character that's based on yourself, um, is that it becomes very difficult. Where I had the problem, it wasn't really my intention to do that, but the problem was that I, the point I started from was actually was always going to be, and the, the moment I decided to write a book was when I was sat in the back of a of a black Mercedes on a road outside of the British um, base in Basra Airport. And the, uh, the Iraqis in the car turned to me and said, are oh, you a spy for the Israelis? Now, the moment they did that, I, the, the sort of, at the end of that day, I thought, if ever I write a book, I, that will be my opening line. Now, in fact, it didn't end up being the opening line, but that is the opening scene in Appetite for Risk. So I always had a place in my head that I thought I'd start writing a book from. The problem is when you've made a bit of a, Crate, well, pretty crazy decision to jump in a taxi in Amman and, and drive to Baghdad in February 2004. It's a bit difficult to try and find a fictional reason why anybody would do that. So I found myself having to use what really happened um, and the, the the logic or the bootneck logic of of how why I came to that decision. So the more you have you add in real logic and real decision making what really happened the more you have to keep adding that because it to keep the whole story coherent and together uh, the trick was to wind in the fictional side of it so in fact the family side and everything else a lot of that is you know is very very close to the truth i mean in fact appetite for risk is almost i mean it's a fictionalized snapshot of our family life for a couple of years so that's that's pretty exposing in a sense like when you put a lot of yourself and your family into something um, that in itself has its own type of courage, right? Because you're kind of letting any, especially nowadays, because anybody in the world now can pick up your book and, and they can pretty much contact you or find you on the internet nowadays with social media and stuff. So, um, do you ever worry about that a little bit? Cause you kind of give your own sort of life out here. To be honest, the, uh, the feedback that I, that I tend to get for that book is the, um, I, remember, I remember another author telling me, "No, no, no, you, you, you can't, you can't use that as an as a reason why the guy goes to Iraq. That doesn't make any sense." And I, and I let him carry on. I said, "But that was how it happened for real." <laughs> 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 I couldn't think of another reason why you would jump in a taxi on your own and you know with a guy that hardly speaks any English and go to Baghdad. 
Um, and to be honest, it, it's so long ago. And I actually now think of the whole story. I, I almost can't remember. You know, it's difficult sometimes to remember which bits were fi- I, which bits of fiction and which bits were real because I spent so much time with the book. I look at it more as John's story, not mine. Um, and it, it's so long ago that there's nothing really that that particularly controversial. And, you know, and, and certainly not in the bits that are that are close to what, you know, the actual real life, real events, you know, the fictionalized stuff doesn't matter because it was fiction. And, and ultimately it's fiction. So even though, yeah, there may be a lot of me in there uh, on what happened, I fictionalized enough of it that it, that it, it makes, it, it, it does make it fiction. It makes it John Pierce's story and not mine. Did you discover something about yourself? Like when you, when you're writing this part, like especially, okay, you do the first book, it's out there and you say you kind of weaved it around real events and, it's like remembering a movie. So there's bits and pieces here and there and you've fictionalized it. But I, I wonder what at the end of the book and when you're finished it and now that it's out, I, do you sort of um, realize some things about yourself and about the time you were there writing about this um, that you didn't at the time? Did you learn something? I think um, the, the biggest thing I took out of it, there were two things. One was um, how, the surprise of, of how um, uh, how pleased I was to have done it um, with regard to things like uh, my dog at the time, who's long gone now, but Taz, you know, re- alive again in the book. Um, another thing was um, that I just had a feeling that it was it made that period so much more worthwhile than instead of it just being me, um, you know, sitting in the pub, throwing a few a few dits around to sort of old oppos. It, you know, I actually got some use out of some of those crazy times, you know, getting it into a book. I mean, it, it was almost like, oh, well, that was, at least that was some research for a book. Uh, but as far as, as far as sort of analyzing sort of what I got out of it, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's difficult because it just seems such a stupid thing to have done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't really explain it any other way because I was literally sitting in a taxi. You know, you hear these people, you know, you say this and these characters say this in books. I was sitting in a taxi. We'd arrived at the, um, at the, at the border, at the Iraqi border. I was the only, you know, Westerner there. Um, they probably thought I had a four before outside the security team. It was just me and, uh, me and, um, Thamer in the, in the taxi. And, and I was on my way into Baghdad and I just thought, what the hell am I doing? But, you know, I was there and I, I just sort of, it, it was just like on autopilot. It's almost like you've sort of double dog dared yourself to do something. And, you know, you've been talking about it for so long. Well, you know, you need to get up there and do it then. And and it's like I say, and this is why I couldn't couldn't really use any other logic in the book other than what the hell it really was. Because I couldn't think of any other reason why someone would do it that, that really made sense. Well, did, did you use a lot of... Um the equipment and weaponry and stuff like that that uh, is used in those situations, like in a techno-thriller within this book? No. I mean, largely at the time, um, of course, we had we had mobile phones. Uh, we're in by 2004. You know, we had, I had mobile, mobile phone. We had internet just about. I, had, I did borrow uh, bits of kit from former military guys. I mean, some of the, you know, some of the, the tracking the piece of tracking equipment in Basra, that was a true story. <laughs> um, you know, the uh, sitting in the garden of the Palestine Hotel uh, with my began pointing at the satellites. Again, that was another, you know, that was another borrowed piece of kit. So, you know, I, I did use those. So I, I've never, I didn't include anything that I hadn't 
personally experienced. Um, but but that was quite a you know that 2004 2005 time was really before you get to the level of and and also the subject matter here was really didn't really impinge onto that sort of high technical you know techno thriller sort of technical side of things. I, I stayed away from the stuff I don't know anything about. When you when you wrote this book, the first one, were you thinking about some sort of point that you wanted people to get? Did you want them to to get something out of the book other than the action, adventure, and entertainment? Um, I, I wouldn't say I wanted them to get it, but I think what I what what it I think what it does illustrate. I, I think it, it's a a real um, walk through Iraq. I mean, in north, south, and center, with the people, you know, with Iraqis, um, you know, at the time, you, you know, it, it actually. I experienced, you know, from Baghdad and then down in Basra and then up into Kurdistan. Um, you know, those all those those local nationals, the Iraqis that I that I took, I mean, they were real people. They were real meetings. The general in Baghdad, you know, the, these people that, that believed he was going to be called up to the MOD, you know, the, these people were all real. I mean, these conversations all happened. So it it was it was really, you know, the the sort of thing that most people were on the other side. You know, they were inside the camps, they were inside the wire, and and you know we we were out. Everything else was the red zone, and I was sort of out just buzzing around with the um, with the with the, with my friends, with the locals. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that picture is 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 quite uh, is relatively unique. Now, I also know how how ridiculous it seems, and how. You know uh, what happened to some other people that were doing similar to what I was, and they were captured, and and, and you know the, the worst things happened to them. So, and it did get scary. I mean, I think the more times you get away with something, you know, you, you go out there once, you're fine. You go out there twice, you're, you're now on your tenth day, and you're going out and you're doing the same thing. And there's um, you're channeled through certain entrances, exits, so you're sure there'll be surveillance, and you know you've got no no real security around you and you start realizing you're taking a hell of a risk and and actually you start getting the more you get away with it the more scared you get that you you know you you're really you know running your chances what do you think uh, that that we get wrong in the public about iraq like do you know about the people and the way they live and about what goes on there i'm not sure i think that the chief thing um i mean i don't know the i don't know the south so well um uh, and I know the north. I still work in the north. In fact, I might be back into Kurdistan next week. Um, I was there last month. I still see some of the people actually that were in the first book. Um, they, uh, the, but the key, the chief thing I always found between Iraq and Afghanistan was was in Iraq, the people want the same thing that we do. They want a nice school for their kids. <laughs> they want to go on holiday, but sometimes you know within the country, often up into Kurdistan for the summer, where it's a bit cooler. Uh, they want a good school. They want to go out, you know, walking on into the cafes by the tigers in the evenings. I mean, that was, you know, they want the same as we do you know, in the West. I mean, it's a very recognizable society. And, of course, religion wasn't a big thing under Saddam. Um, in fact, he obviously suppressed it for a long time until after the um, the 91 Gulf War when he tried to embrace it to, you know, to, to rally support within the country. Whereas in Afghanistan, I you know, I think a lot of the people want to be left alone to do the things their way and don't really, you know, I'm, I'm talking outside outside of Kabul. You know, and so you, you've got an almost impossible um, – you had an almost impossible problem where you were trying to force what you believe is better for, the, for a lot of the population that, that they don't necessarily want. Uh, but, I didn't, but I didn't really know Afghanistan so well. So, I mean, it's not, that's not really my, my, uh, my fiefdom. I know some people that, that actually far preferred 
you know, Af- Afghanistan. I had a good friend of mine, um, and he he would he he couldn't stand Iraq, and his, his everything that he was doing was in Afghanistan. But for me, the, with the I mean, now with the Kurds, I mean, they are you know, they are Western friend. I mean, not just Western friendly. I mean, they're you know, they are they're genuinely um, allies, really, for us. I mean, I'm talking about the the Iraqi Kurds. Obviously, there are Syrian Kurds, Turkish Kurds, Iranian Kurds. It's so you know, that's as good as I'm huge problems um, geopolitically. Um, but certainly in, in northern Iraq, I've always felt um, amongst friends. In fact, it's probably the place that puts the biggest smile on my face is when I fly into Suleymaniyah. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like where I live except safer. <laughs> so it's like, it's like where, where I live south of London except safer and I've got more security around me and with better weather. <laughs> Less rain. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Um, now, now you went on, and now you've got a new book that just just come out, I believe. It's sure. just out now, and it's called "It uh, Don't Play Dead with the Vultures." If you yeah. got it to go, go hard. That's my saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, go hard. So this is four years later. This happens, and what what was kind of the progress? You decided that you would bring back your Marine John Pierce, and you're going to go into a new situation. Um, how did that come about? Well, um, funnily enough, <laughs> I was in Iraq running convoys <laughs> in 2007. <laughs> no, sorry, in summer 2008. And I did get lured into Africa. Uh, so uh, so the, the sort of spine of the story, if you like, I, I, I think that, that Don't Play Dead with Vultures is, is far more of a, it's fictional flesh on a skeleton of real events, real life. Uh, especially with the timelines. So I was in the, the places doing some of the things um, that are in the book, but a lot of the um, scenes that, that may have occurred um, for real uh, in some context weren't, aren't in the context and with the characters as, as I've, as that are described in the book. In Appetite for Risk, nearly all, or most of the characters, probably two thirds of Appetite for Risk happened for real. Um, in Don't Play Dead with Vultures, it's far, far more fictionalized. I, I realized very early on that I had to fictionalize all the characters. Appetite for Risk was um, a guy going out, and, and uh, yeah, although there were a lot of other characters around, a lot of them are um, ancillary characters that don't really, you know, they, 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 they help him to do move here, move there, get. In Don't Play Dead with Vultures, there were going to be far more. Um, characters that had a meaningful input that, that were seri- you know, important characters in the story, and I, I couldn't use real people for that. It, it was too it pigeonholed, or it was too it narrowed what I could do with them because I, I mean, straight away I realised that I, I couldn't use guys that I'd worked in the company with uh, on the convoys because immediately I could only think of them and what they would say or what they had said, and I couldn't move outside of that. So I had to fictionalize it. And the moment I fictionalized all the characters, and there are also some characters actually that are literally too unbelievable for fiction that were involved for real. So that I knew were just ridiculous. I couldn't put them in. So once I'd fictionalized nearly everybody else around John Pierce, then I could use that framework of try and keep that, that, that visceral sort of reality sitting someone in the car alongside the main character, alongside the characters. But, but completely fictionalize it, you know, and have these these real life um, uh, incidents happening, but in different contexts with different people at different times than how they happen for real. So 
it has this thread of real life that, that drives the story forward and is the reason why it's, it's such a, a long book, actually. It's, uh, it's far longer than I intended. Um, but it gives it, um, again, it, it, it keeps it coherent. It gives it depth. Um, and that's, that's how, that's how I feel. And, and my intention was always to, to sit the character alongside John Pierce and, right, this is how it works. This is, this is what it's like to be in these places doing these things. Well, as you, you began, uh, you know, fictionalizing these characters and, and, and writing, um, how did you experience your characters? Uh, could you hear them? Could you hear their voices? Um, was it more like a movie in your head? How, how does that work for you? To be honest, the when I was writing, especially this with Don't Play Dead with Vultures, it took me a, a, a it was far longer time to write it, um, and I, I really sort of lived inside it um, in in the book. I mean, as in it was almost like exactly the same as when I'm reading a book. When you're so engaged, you know, the sort of book that you just just want to get back to and start reading it again. Yeah. You, you're right in amongst it, and I was experiencing that. But as the author, that's how I felt. So it. I wouldn't say I was hearing the characters or I was seeing it. I was just experiencing it. And, of course, I was writing about places where, you know, in 2008 I was in these places and I was doing very similar things. Um, and I say I was just m merging them in with these characters and, and, and making decisions, making, you know, as John Pierce making decisions and, you know, almost like, almost like gaming it. You know, I've played a few war games and bits and pieces over the years. Hmm. You know, almost like red teaming it. You know, you throw a problem in. But I already had a uh, an outline, so I knew where we were going. But it was always the goal was actually a what if um, that was proposed to me at the time in 2000 uh, in 2010. And, and that so that was the the end game was this fictionalized what if. Imagine if it had actually happened and and throwing a whole lot of uh, a lot of issues at the guys. So. Yeah, I, I sort of I live inside it. I mean, it, you know, it's it, uh, this. But of course, what that means is that when I'm writing, it's not that I have to write perfectly, but I have a very clean first draft because it needs to be right. Um, as in, and not each word, but it needs to be right in order for me to be enjoying, you know, enjoying the story to have that foundation to then move forward from. So I tend to be quite slow, uh, slow and steady, and just sort of, like I say, just it's like spending a year inside a book, but inside the story. <laughs> right and that's how it works for me anyway that's uh you know it, it's uh i mean yeah I, I sort of i speak it out loud and you know and i'll have the conversation i mean uh, you know the the, the the sort of the the dialogue between characters is quite easy because that's exactly it might not be exactly the dialogue i've had but it would be the you know it's exactly the dialogue i would have or have experienced or similar to in in those kind of situations over the years so i found that relatively straightforward and enjoyable some of the some of the characters are loosely inspired by um, genuine people um, that were there at the time. Um, you know, I've changed nationalities, or I've, you know, I, I've made uh, I've made them different enough so I wasn't constrained by the real person. Um, but like I say, that that gave it that, that gave it the the sort of the foundation to to really to write from. It, you know, that it gave it that that route that pathway. Um, so I didn't have never deviated too far away from it you know some of the and some of the of course the anecdotal type stories that are thrown in they give it that feeling of realism mm. that, that you know and, I, and i'm looking at things and i'm thinking well yeah that, that sort of happened but it happened to somebody else <laughs> you know a year later <laughs> or a, you know or it happened a year before in a totally different environment 
but because in this that, that realism when you put in those characters and so i didn't have to think up too much too many things i just threw into all right that really happened but now imagine it happening to these characters so it was really good fun i mean i really really enjoyed writing this one you you mustn't outline then do you, you kind of when you sat down to do this book too did you kind of know where it was going to end do you kind of know that ahead of time yeah i mean i i i, I did outline this but i, oh. I sort of but, but with a, a sort of I, like I say, this framework, so I knew where it was going, um, but in quite loose, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, I mean some people write 20,000, 30,000 word outlines, these kind of things. I had a couple of, couple of A4 a pages with notes on, bullet points. So I know where it's mm. going. And that's, uh, you know, getting adjusted all the time. And, um, you know, I, I had to, you know, I, I, I left it quite open, you know, a bit like red teaming, wargaming it, you know, right, if this happens, right, well, unfortunately, somebody's going down, you know, this kind of thing, you know, and it, and I was quite, you know, it was quite, um, having spent so much time sort of almost feeling like you're part of the team. And that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted people to read, to, to feel like, as though they, you know, they'd had the passport stamped and they'd been in and out of Guinea and riding with the team, you know, and, 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 and you know, experiencing these things. And, you know, if you, if you feel something for the characters, then, of course, it makes any um, tension, any risk, any threat or and certainly any serious incidents that much more tangible that much more emotional for anybody that's reading and uh, and I felt that the same when I was writing it even though these weren't weren't real people I probably felt more emotional um writing the second book with the fictional characters than I did in the first book which was just you know doing things from memory <laughs> well that's because real people are awful <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> you know fictional people are easier to like <laughs> You know, it's like it's like a pet, you know, much easier. <laughs> yeah. Do you write from John Pierce's point of view then? I do, um, and uh, that's having written having written these two books. That's uh, of course that's that becomes a constraint in itself. With the first book being so closely aligned to things that happened to me. I mean, I say it isn't me; it's John Pierce. It is somebody different. But uh, having used that and having used the sort of family setup. Um, which was very similar to my own because that influenced so much of the decision making at the time. So again, I couldn't, it was difficult to separate it off. Um, it does mean that it constrains sort of ideas for a third book where I've been considering whether to, whether to write another, another John Pierce book or whether to write a, um, a completely different, um, different set of characters and, and, you know, standalone, um, with serious potential, of course, as they always say. Um, and I'm just, you know, looking at that at the moment, there was something that was proposed to me in the, in early 2020 that I'm, I'm thinking of writing a what if, um, sort of punchy thriller about, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how to approach that at the moment. Don't make it. It was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get, get politically correct. John Pierce is coming back. He's going to transition into, uh, Janice or something. <laughs> And then he's going to go back and and do it again, but under a different identity. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's to be honest. Uh, you know, in the last few days, I've I've uh, I've, got, I've had two ideas. It was a it was a third book that I was always going to write because I spent 2011 and 12. I spent a couple of years um, on the counter piracy um, stuff in the Indian Ocean off the Somali coast, or right. I say off the Somali coast. I mean. Indian Ocean can be a long way off the Somali coast, depends where you're going, but, you know, bouncing around between Sri Lanka and Oman and Egypt and South Africa, you know, protect, you know, protecting the, uh, the, um, the bulkers and the tankers from pirates. 
Um, and I was going to, I still intend to write a book about that. And that was going to be a sort of third John Pierce book, but I'm now wondering whether to roll, you know, roll that out and, and do something slightly different because it needs to be third person, multi viewpoint. You know, I need, I need to hit it a completely different way. And when you look at books like, um, you look at how uh, books like Red Metal, Mark Graney and uh, Rip Rawlings, um, excellent, excellent book. You know, where you, you see it almost like an old style, almost like a Red Storm Rising style books, where you're seeing these multiple points of view, um, you know, of a big international um, thriller where incidents are occurring. Of course, with that, that's war. But, but I had a, a quite a big sort of idea. And uh, so I'm looking at looking at various ways of, of approaching it. But I haven't I, I'm, I'm not a. I'm not a full-time writer at all, and I'm a, I'm a convenience writer. I write when I feel like it. I'm a bit more of a, like a Hank Moody in Californication type of writer. I, I write when I get – I write. he's my inspiration. I, I write when I, when I really feel like writing rather than sitting to any, any big schedule. But, of course, once you get in the story, you want to – you know, you actually want to write. You know, you want to get mm. down there. and You, you want to sit down. And, but to be honest, even on a daily basis, I'm happy – if the stories move forward, even if it's moved forward because I've thought of something new rather than how many words I've written. I mean, a lot of people write a thousand words a day, 2000 words a day. They do. And then they, and they say they write five days a week. And you think, well, you've written, every year you're writing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words. So, you know, and it works for them. But for me, I've, I'm a lot fewer words, but when I do get them down, like I say, I, I try to make sure they're the right or as closer to the right ones or certainly the right story um, as possible. It's more important that way anyway, um, than just have a volume. Now, now your, your character. So have you developed him enough that people know who he is by these two books? Do you think? I think the second book, I mean, I was, you know, they just had a blog tour for the last couple of weeks and I've been, you know, I really didn't know what the, what the reception would be like. Um, because it's a long book, um, it's in, obviously it's a thriller in first person. It actually, uh, and a lot of it does feel quite has quite a third person feel to it because I've been I've used communications to be able to provide beyond visual, effectively beyond visual range sort of ability to understand what's going on to paint a bigger picture. Um, but one of the things that has really come out is even though I don't describe characters, I hardly ever actually give physical descriptions. Is is the bloggers that have been that have reviewed the book tell it saying how how well developed and and how they could literally I mean one of the you know saying they could as though they could see him in front of them you know as they stood right there kind of thing so and as far as actually developing the character and his um, uh, his his persona and everything I mean again this is something that that these uh, these initial reviews are all are all really singing about you know and and the the same with descriptions uh, I, I had. With an early um, uh, critique of um, appetite for risk, I was told, "Well, you, you need to, you know, you need to just up the up the up the description level a little bit because you might have driven down a you know a dusty road heading towards Bazaar, but there, none of these readers have, you know." And this was a guy saying to me, it's an "You need to just put a little bit more in." And I don't do much in the way of descriptive writing, as in flowery descriptive writing, but it's one of those things that. Um, the first book, you know, the, the people were talking about how the visceral sort of nature. I mean, I had somebody talking about the second book saying it was like being in virtual reality. Uh, you know, that that sort of what I went for, you know, that's what I was trying to do is, was sit people down in an unusual situation and actually 
sort of experience, not just in the second book, not just with John Pierce, but with the whole with the whole gang, with the crew, with the team. It's it's a much wider cast, really, of important characters in the second book. How do you decide who you're going to kill off? Do you like? Do you take kind of take a person that uh, you've met that you don't like, and then decide? <laughs> well, listen, this is going to be the guy that dies. No. Well, the problem, well, what happened with this one was I actually had earmarked some people um, for the Grim Reaper that, that managed to survive it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was just, and again, that was almost like, as though, you know, running an exercise. I mean, it, you know, like, almost like wargaming it and, oh, dear, he didn't, you know, he survived it and he didn't kind of thing. And that's what I went with. I didn't rethink it. I sort of, I, I don't, I, I didn't, in fact, even with the editing, the reason why it took me quite a long time to finish the book, I'd finished the first draft within a year, but it took me another year to do the editing was because when I edited, I was going through, giving the, a, you know, a careful read through and making notes and then editing. And then I would leave it for three months and not even look at it again because I didn't want to overread the book. I didn't want to, analyze too hard the change i didn't want to take suck out the sort of um the initial sort of energy of it if you like um so i then do another big edit you know and then three months later i was picking up and that there wasn't any kind of preordained technique it was just the way it worked um and it means that even now i you know i'm not I'm not sick of the book. I, I'd actually, you know, I read it, the paperback, when it uh, when I got mine delivered. And I sat down and read it, mainly because I wanted to check there wasn't a typo on page one. <laughs> because that's the one thing you always want. You know, it's the one thing I always used to say. In fact, a guy I uh, bumped into in, uh, on the road in Solomon in a cafe at uh, Dukan. And he said, oh, Mr. T- you know, Mr. John, you, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the one thing you always told me, because he'd been promoted, he said, you know, is uh, don't screw up on the first day. Because, of course, especially when you're running convoys or PSD tasks or anything else, anything could go wrong on any mission. And so my mantra was always, do not screw it up today. Just don't do it on the first day, because that's the, the day the client will always remember. You know, you, you mark your card with it. Um, and so, yeah, I did the same with the book. You sort of reading through and thinking, oh, you know, let's, let's get through the first Let's get through the first chapter. Then let's, let's get through part one. Right, let's get through part two. You know, just, just hoping that you're not going to see that terrible blooper unfortunately i mean the only yeah i mean there's there's one thing but it's not actually a mistake it was a proofreading change that was made uh, that i didn't pick up that um i got changed then for the kindle but uh and i also uh, i also make sure I, in my both my books now i have one use of the uh americanized verb behoove in uh, and that's that, that's my my friend greg who's a former uh, green beret he uh, i worked for his company out uh, out in baghdad he was always behooving. <laughs> it would behoove us. We were always behooving a lot of things. So I, I stuck one in. In fact, the character Greg in the first book is actually uh, is a description of Greg, of, of uh, Greg Holmes, who I know. And, uh, yeah, so he, I, I've decided every book I ever write will always have one use of the, of the verb behoove. And, of course, the proofreader in the first book tried to change it to some British behove or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to look at The first thing I do when I get a proofreading back is check whether to see whether they've changed my behoove. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to put a little note at the beginning. Do not. I did this. Uh, for this one. I did. I said the use. There is a single use of the foot behoove, and it is intentional. Leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, when you're so when you're writing, um, you just go play it by ear. You don't sit down and clear time and do it and all that. You are just going by how you feel. Well, to be honest, I mean, sort of. Uh, 
what what was happening with a lot of um, uh, when I was finishing off don't don't play dead with vultures. It was um, I'd actually shifted positions in the house, so I don't work in my office because I and I because I still work with the Middle East. Then I tend to do work early on um, from early in the morning, and then by the afternoon once everything's cleared, um, that's when I'll sit down and aim to sort of just just as it begins to fall asleep. You know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, start to uh, start to write, and then write till sort of six. That would be, you know, and I got into quite a pattern of that. Um, and and but funnily enough, when I'm overseas, I tend to I tend to write in the mornings because no one's up because they're all late up. So I tend to get get up early and, and write on a rickety kitchen table somewhere. But right. but I do tend to get into a rhythm. It's just that uh, you know a lot of writers are a writer. I mean. They're, like proper writers. I mean, they're, you know, it's their calling, and, and that's what they do. Which means they need to write every day, and they, you know, that's uh, and that absolutely, you know, that uh, that's how I am when I'm write when I'm in a book. But if I'm not writing a book, I mean, I'm still, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, didn't start writing. Until I was 49 for, for, you know, for the um, appetite for risk, and so I still have the belief that if you're writing something down, then it means you're working. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't really think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I even enjoy writing. I just have some some stories that are good fun, you know, that, um, you know, that, that are effectively writing the books you want to read. Um, and in yeah. fact, when I, and the other thing is when I write, I read more. I, I'm a voracious reader, even more when I'm writing a book. I know a lot of authors don't like to read when they're writing. I read so much. It inspires me to be reading good books. It inspires me to be, to, to be writing more. And you, you read the same type of, Genre oh yeah, in, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I read, I read anything. But I mean, I tend to, you know, I, I do tend to read um, similar books. I read mean, a lot of spy fiction, but I mean, psychological thrillers and um, and military thrillers. I mean, yeah, sort of Don Bentley, Jack Carver, Rick Rawlings, Mark Greeny, you know, um, to Charles Cummings, John Le Carre, all the, you know, just whatever. I mean, Paul Vidic, sort of every, everything. Um, I just just read as much as I can. I mean, I've always got a you know. A, a paperback and a and an audio book and a Kindle book on the go all the time anyway, but even more so when I'm writing. I just find that I have to clear my mind of the book um, almost the the word the actual words on the page and just read something else because you've got it going through your head so many other times walking the dog or training in the gym or anything else. The book's always there, so it's good to get those chances to fill your head with something else and especially you know and, and appreciate other great stories. You know, there's nothing better than a book that you absolutely love that you just can't wait to get back into. You know, and, and I, I think it's, you know, you can go through a few books that are good books and you read them and they're great. And then you get one and you think this is why I love reading. And and this year in January, I read two fantastic books. There was um, Bomber by Len Dayton, uh, which is a 24 hours of a fictional bombing raid uh, by the RAF over Germany. But it's not just the it's from both sides. It's from the side on the, the ground in the in in England, in Germany and in the bomber crews. And an even better book that I read straight after that was um, Stephen Pressfield's uh, The Afghan Campaign. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's I mean, and it's absolutely what, what I would not expect to like. It's it's ancient, which I just would say. I don't read. It's first person present tense. <laughs> I mean, it just sounds, you know, it's a non-starter. And it's about a soldier in, in Alexander's army. And it's fantastic. It's an epic story. And I, I absolutely loved it. It's, it immediately, it's one of my top ten books. I thought it was fantastic. And, in fact, Stephen Pressfield's book Killing Rommel, uh, which was set in the Second World War, about an SS patrol, 
um, targeting Rommel was also another fantastic book. So, uh, yeah, so he, you know, there's, there's a, I hadn't read any of his before those two, and they are two brilliant books. But yeah, I mean, this, you know, it, it only inspires you even more when you read something that's fantastic. You know, everybody's looking that whenever you pick up a book, you're hoping this is going to be the one that's just going to, you know, you're just going to devour. Now, um, do you have yourself? set up on uh, a website and you have like social media things do you like to interact with readers um where can they find you yeah i mean i've got a i've got a website that's now probably slightly out of date because obviously the second book's come out i mean there is some uh, there is bits and pieces on it but it's slowly being updated and that's at jacklevers.com um i am on twitter uh, i do a bit of facebook but it's not my natural sort of habitat and i god knows what i do on uh on Instagram because I haven't got a clue what half of that stuff is. I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I get these posts and then it says, do you want to post this to your story? So I just click yes and I've got no idea what's going on. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> you know? But I do have a, you know, I do have a just, uh, you know, I'm uh, at Jack Levers on, on Twitter and uh, in Facebook, I think it's at Jack Levers author. But I mean, yeah, so I, I am around, you know, I'm around and about and readers can get in touch. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've, I, I had a couple of, uh, a couple of guys uh, actually acknowledged in the book. Um, one of them was a, uh, for this is the second book in WW Vultures, and one of them was a Canadian pilot um, who uh, who I'm I'm hoping I haven't screwed up <laughs> when he reads the section that he advised me on. I mean, literally, of course, they give you all this advice and technical and everything else, and we chat about it, and of course, it turns into about you know five five lines or two lines in a paragraph in the book and the same thing for another for a master sniper that uh, that i know um you know he, all his advice and all the discussions we had and it, i think it literally it comes you know it, 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 well the actual technical specifics is literally the name of the weapon and that's probably about all that was included although the, the usage mm. was, uh, was something separately so i'm actually quite scared now because they're they're both reading the book i think at the moment <laughs> So I'm, yeah. I'm waiting for the abuse to start flying, and as, and also from um, my any readers in Australia because there's a, an, an important Australian character, and uh, so I'm sure I'm going to get some sledging from them for my uh, awful Aussie slang. Although I'll be blaming the Aussies that I used to work with because that's who I uh, picked that all up from. Oh well, I'll be fine. Just watch out for that sniper. The sniper. You know, that's, that's right. That's the danger. You know. <laughs> Well, this is um, interesting. We'll have all that up on the website as well. People can find you then, hunt you down. You know. <laughs> uh, writing over these situations, you're writing out and you're in these countries and you're all doing all these things. And, and I just wonder if um, how, you know, tension affects you. Does it sort of, when you get stressed or upset, does it sort of work against you when you write? Yeah, it does. Uh, but I think... The, the biggest for all the, the things that happen physically uh, and the difficulties you have, um, you know, uh, people used to talk to me you know, about Baghdad, about going down route Irish, these kind of things. And, and I, uh, you know, I wasn't PSD running down down Irish at the worst of the, the times or anything. I'm not, you know, but what I used to say to them is, yeah, we might be traveling around, you know, Baghdad and it's, it's a relatively high threat. However, wearing body armor we're in b6 armored vehicles we're tooled up to the nines we're equipped for it you're actually you know the actual threat you know um and the, the risk to yourself your vulnerability is far higher when you're downtown at two o'clock in the morning in any major city on your own stumbling around after having a few beers so heading home you're vulnerable then and there's a lot of places 
in South America and in Africa, you know, in Europe, everywhere where the vulnerability is heavy. But those kind of things you can cope with, I can cope with. The difficulty, I think, the, the hardest thing is actually financial financial stress and pressures. And I found in 2004, and about around the time when I which I in the book set, so I was under massive sort of financial pressure, and that was scary. That really was scary until it's so bad that you realize that there's no choice. You can't go back to a normal job anymore. <laughs> you know, you're so deep in <laughs> that basically you've got a twist, you know, and you've got to go for it. And that's sort of what happened to me um, in 2004, and it still happens to me now. And actually, it's the financial side of things. It's that uh, that desire to get um, – to get secure and unfortunately i you know my my biggest fault is i'm a i'm a high not gambler as in on the horses or the cards but i take risks business risks financial risks I'm like, okay they're physical risks but i go all in with these high risk high reward um uh, you know situations where you end up on a precipice and that pressure is the only is, is the hardest pressure and of course a lot of uh, the way i look at it is that i have i have a potential big win on the other side, whereas there's a lot of people, especially now with the the economic downturn that's affecting certainly the UK, I'm sure the US is the same, um, where people, you know, they are they're without hope really of how they're going to get out the, out of the situation. So a lot of the time, I'm just grateful for what I've got, and that I might be, you know, st- standing on the precipice looking down, but you know, I've got a good chance that I'm going to make it over the other side and, and come up smelling the roses. And uh, so far, it's always happened. Somehow, I've always pulled out the bag. The next contract has come along or you've got the win um, on something. But but that kind of pressure, I, find, I think, is, is worse than anything that you get in the, you know, for me anyway, in the uh, in the military or or in the private, private sort of security sector. But then I haven't been stuck in a fire base out in Afghan, <laughs> you know, for six yeah. months. And I'm sure the pressure for the guys, you know, friends of mine that were out there in those situations, I didn't have that. I mean, I've obviously served in other, other situations, but it's much more transitory when you're in private security, or for me it was, mobile operations, you're running PSD, you're running convoys, you're in, out, you know, you, you've, you've got a, a plan, you can say, yep, success, done that. You know, when you're launching patrols out of a fire base, you know, in some IED-ridden valley, for six months, that pressure's got to be uh, absolutely horrendous, and of course it. Mm. You know, but uh, but yeah, I, I think the financial the financial side is the one thing that will keep me keep me awake at night and make it difficult for me. But then and then until it turns into anger, and then I write start writing another book. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> anger that's and frustration it. because most of the time it's because I haven't been paid by somebody. Um, yeah. Usually, somebody yeah. in some far flung corner of the world where I've, I then have to go and hunt them down. <laughs> well, exactly. No, <laughs> oh, shoot them. Come on, you know, uh, you know, and it's not, it's not like you're the pressure of waiting in the Starbucks drive-through and being late for work. <laughs> now yeah. that is pressure. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, it's certainly interesting. So, everyone, uh, our guest today has been Jack Levers, and we've been talking about his two books. Of course, the new one is uh, "Don't Play Dead with Vultures." If you've got to go, go hard, and of course. We got to keep him out of uh, financial trouble. So everyone, get out there and, and buy a book. You know, it may keep him keep him going. He doesn't have to go out and hunt down people anymore. So, <laughs> Mr. Jack Levers, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan. It's been great. Thank, thanks, Jack. Yep, thanks, David. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now.
was as good for you as it was for me. Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.